Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books, um, and we are cooking with gas. We've got a new website. If you guys haven't seen, check it out, skylightbooks.com. It's looking very nice, very fresh, much, much, much more readable than it was before, and shopping cart works. Amazing, amazing news. Um, so I hope you guys check that out. Um, the store is open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Yes, you wear a mask, socially distance, all that good stuff. Um, so today, I'm excited to be hosting Dr. Yaba Blay. She's the author of One Drop. Um, we're going to be talking about it in greater detail uh, in just a second. Um, but I wanted to just say a few words about the book and then introduce you to Dr. Blay. So One Drop is... Uh, a new book out from Beacon Press, it just came out in February, and um, it challenges the narrow perceptions of blackness as both an identity and a lived reality to understand the diversity of what it means to be black in the US and around the world. Um, it features the perspectives of 60 contributors representing 25 countries, and it combines uh, narratives with striking portraiture. The photographs are really beautiful um, and really, uh, really give you this strong sense of personality, like each one speaks so much, and then it's beautiful to see them paired with um, each subject's description of their own identity and, and who they are. Um, so it's a really powerful project, and um, one that I think, you know, is fits very well with this long discussion we've been having um, over the past year and over the history of this country um, about race and um, color and how we sort of classify versus identify people. Um, so let me tell you a bit about the author. So Dr. Yabo Blay is a scholar, activist, public speaker, and cultural consultant whose scholarship work and practice centers on the lived experiences of black women and girls with a particular focus on identity, body politics, and beauty practices. Lauded by O Magazine for her social media activism, she has launched several viral campaigns, including Locks of Love, hashtag pretty period, and hashtag professional black girl, her multi-platform digital community. Widely respected as one of the foremost thought leaders on black racial identity, colorism, and beauty politics, Dr. Blay is a globally sought after speaker and consultant with an extensive client list of over two dozen academic institutions, including Harvard University, Duke University, Spelman College, New York University, to name a few and such corporate entities as Netflix, Unilever International, Shea Moisture, Estee Lauder Companies, Procter & Gamble's My Black is Beautiful, and the hashtag MeToo movement. 
Dr. Yabo Gwei earned a Master of Arts and PhD in African American Studies with distinction and a graduate certificate in Women's Studies from Temple University. She also holds a Master of Education in Counseling Psychology from the University of New Orleans, the former Dan Blue Endowed Chair in Political Science at North Carolina Central University. She has also taught on the faculties of Lehigh University, Lafayette College, and Drexel University, where she served as the Director of the Africana Studies Program. Dr. Yabo Blay, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How have you been kind of spending your pandemic days um, as you're publicizing this book? Publicizing this book? <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing a lot of Zoom calls, right? Lots of Zooms, but it's been good. Lots of conversations. Mm-hmm. And you just did a, an event at Book Soup, is that right? Our, our sister oh, store? Yeah. Oh, it's coming up. Okay, great. So for all of you listening... Check that out. It's going to be on the BookSoup Crowdcast page. And you're in conversation with? Jamila Lemieux. Excellent. Um, that's going to be great. All right. So um, to start us off, I was hoping you might read a little bit from the book. Do you have a section prepared? Sure. Um, this is from the section that is entitled Mixed Black. And it reads, one of the first interviews I conducted was with woman I went to graduate school with. I remember very clearly that neither I nor any of my female colleagues liking to her initially, even though we hadn't yet been formally introduced or shared any conversation or interaction. We didn't know anything about her at the time, not even her name. It was just something about her. It was her vibes. She just seemed like one of those light-skinned girls, like she thought she was cute, too good to speak. Shortly before she graduated from the program, a professor encouraged me to connect with Danielle because of a paper she had written in his class, one that aligned with my interest in skin color politics. Shortly thereafter, a mutual friend introduced us. Much to my surprise, Danielle was cool and we got along fine. Years later, as I began to identify potential people to interview for this project, Danielle was one of the first people I thought of. Although I did not know how she specifically identified racially, I assumed that because she enrolled in and graduated from the African-American Studies Department at Temple University, a program historically known for its resolute Afrocentric perspective. She at the very least identified as a person of African descent. What she shared about her background and experiences put everything I once thought I knew about her into perspective. She grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania in a Mennonite community, daughter of a white Mennonite mother and an African-American father. In that community, it was painfully clear to her and everyone else that she was Black. So much so that she didn't have a lot of friends and was ostracized in school. Later, when she moved to Philadelphia to attend Temple, not only was her Blackness called into question, but she experienced a new type of ostracism, retaliatory pain inflicted by browner-skinned Black women. It wasn't that she thought she was cute or too good to speak, quite the opposite. She would have loved to connect with us, But given her experiences, she in many ways felt socially awkward and felt the need to be cautious when entering social situations. We proved her right, and she proved us right, or so we thought. Like Danielle, a number of contributors are technically biracial, with parents of two different races. Their experiences reveal that the issue of language is an important one. For some, the term biracial obscures their lived experiences as well as their identity. In Jay's estimation, the term implies or buys into a concept of someone who's mixed being half black, half white, in a way that doesn't really correlate with the experience of being a human being. Lena, 
who is quite adamant about not self-identifying as biracial, believes that in the global context, the term is part of the machinery that seeks to define and conquer oppressed people and marginalize and isolate people of African and indigenous ancestry. While the term biracial is offensive for many, most contributors seem accepting, if not embracing, of the term mixed. For Josen, saying that he's mixed is just stating a fact, answering the question as it was asked. Culturally, however, he identifies as Black. For him, as for many other contributors, mixed is not mutually exclusive from Black and or African-American, and some use the term simultaneously and interchangeably to self-identify. Whereas in the contemporary moment, someone of mixed race parentage would be given the option to select all that apply or check other and fill in the blank. In years past, there were only two options, black or white. Adopted as an infant in the 1950s and having grown up in North Carolina with the Klan, CB didn't learn that his father was white until he was 12 years old. And still, for him, that didn't change his lived experiences as a black man in the South. Born in the late 1960s to an Afro-Cuban mother and a white Australian father, Maria, better known as Soledad O'Brien, was always told that she was both Black and Latina from a very early age. And from her perspective, her parents did her a huge favor in doing so. Perhaps this marks the generational difference, parents issuing their children's identity to them. Perhaps this was a simple necessity given the racially charged times. Many mixed contributors have had to face and address questions of belonging throughout their lives, while Perry recognizes that whites may be more comfortable with him than they might be with someone of a darker complexion. From his experiences, white people are clear. You're not us. You're not Black. And treat him as Black. Tagis has had a different experience in that she finds that she is more comfortable in white spaces. However, in African-American spaces, she is often made to feel like an outsider. It is rare that other Blacks see her as a sister. By the time June discovered that he was actually biologically of African descent, he was in his mid-30s and had been self-identifying as Black for much of his adult life. For him, identity was connected to a sense of home, and he had always felt at home in Blackness. Self-identification for many people of mixed heritage is as much predicated on social realities as historical or genetic ones. And for many of our contributors, their Blackness was never an option. However, as we will witness in more detail in the final section, Diaspora Black, when we examine Blackness in regions outside of the United States, we glean a different relationship between mixedness and Blackness than what American history reveals. Elsewhere, being mixed of Black ancestry does not automatically signal Blackness. Despite often being mistaken for white in the United States, in Jamaica, Deborah is regarded as brown, a social and class-based category often regarded as distinct from Black. Ariel sees his Blackness as a choice, a conscious political choice, especially given that in his home country, Cuba, he could easily take on any number of identities none of which would have to be Black. James Bartlett experienced cross-national differences in social and racial realities firsthand when he traveled to Ghana. Although he had been often mistaken for Puerto Rican or Italian at home in the United States, he had never been mistaken for purely white. In Ghana, 
where one is either Ghanaian or not, mixedness is more aligned with otherness in general and whiteness more specifically. And thus, most Ghanaians assumed that James was an Obroni, a white man or foreigner. The space between their presumed identity and their self-identity is one that a number of contributors have had to constantly navigate. Kathleen, who appeared on the Donahue Show in the 1990s in an episode entitled Blacks Who Pass for White, once imagined herself trapped in the body of a white woman. But through a variety of life experiences, she has now come to appreciate the pale wrapper the creator put her in. May, whose mother is Asian and father is African-American, remembers visiting the Whitney Museum as a child and receiving what would become her favorite pen, one that read, quote, I never imagined wanting to be white, end quote, which captured her inner feelings perfectly. Brandon is often asked why he would identify as African-American when he could easily pass as something else. In response, he says that he, quote, lives by the words of Frederick Douglass. I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others, rather than to be false and incur my own abhorrence. What the narratives featured in this section reveal is that what it means to be of mixed race is not at all the same for everyone. Thank you for that reading. Sure. How's my sound now? Just want to check. I think it's Great. Glad to hear it. Um, so this is so interesting. And I think getting in, getting into the space between the kind of externally projected ideas of identity, the very rigid sort of boxes, but which are nonetheless um, different depending on the culture you're in, the government structures that you're interacting with, and the kind of self-created, um, self-described identity. Um, there, there's so much in that in that gap, right, between those two projections. Um, and I wanted to first kind of talk about the historical context here and, and specifically the title, um, One Drop, which is referring to the rule of the hypo-descent. Did I pronounce that correctly? Rule of hypo Okay. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and um, how you're kind of expanding out from that very simplified understanding of race? Sure. It was important to me. You're hearing an echo? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to mute myself while you talk. So it was important uh, to me to map out a brief history of race in the United States as an introduction because when it comes to racial identity, when it comes to race and conversations of race in general, in this country particularly, folks acts, act as if there's not an entire history that sets the foundation for where we are right now. And when we talk about identity, a lot of folks act as if it is truly a choice, right? That you can just say who you are and everyone should just take you as such. It might work that way for other characteristics or other categories of, of identity. It doesn't quite work that way with race. And so setting that um, historical foundation for me helped to contextualize what you come to read in folks' narratives, right? So historically, um, in the context of enslavement, particularly in this country, we know that that history of enslavement also comes with a history of widespread rape of enslaved African women and thus a large growing population of quote unquote mixed race 
folks. Um, it's interesting to also talk about language in there. I talk about the language at the time being mulatto, right? Which we should know is a, is a pejorative term, at least in the United States, because mulatto um, makes reference to a mule. And a mule is the cross between a horse and a donkey. And um, in the animal kingdom, said animal is unable to reproduce and therefore is useless. So at a time where folks perhaps didn't understand much or were willfully attempting to be ignorant, the projection was that to be of two different races was to make you useless. It was a way to attempt to discourage the mixing of the races, right? Another way, um, another attempt to discourage this mixing also came with this rule of hypodescent, which was also referred to as um, the traceable amount rule or the one ancestor rule. But essentially what it said was that if looking at your genealogy, going back even as far as five generations, if there was one person in your family who was Black, you were too, right? Um, when we talk about the kind of colloquialism of the one drop rule, it's literally say one drop of Black blood is enough to make you Black. Now, out of one side of their mouths, uh, that rule was a way to discourage mixing, right? Because what we're now going to see is a shift from uh, a European English um, system of, of genealogy that attaches a child to its father, right? Which is why we take our, part of the reason why we take our father's last names. That's how we trace our history, right? What this rule said ultimately is that if a white man were to father a child with an enslaved African woman, that that child would not take the father's last name. That child would not be the father's responsibility. So out of the other side of their mouths, and in practice, actually, what they did was actually encourage the continued rape of African women, the um, continued, quote unquote, mixing of the races, because now this white man has no responsibility to this child other than remaining its owner, right? So you don't gain a child, you gain another source of labor. Um, and so in this way, what's interesting, connecting history to, I think, contemporary realities, it's part of the reason why... Um, black folks, and particularly uh, American Black folks, our understandings of Blackness historically have been very wide and very vast. We understand that even with own, within our own families, folks can be a variety of complexions, but we also are connecting, um, consciously or not, to a time when we didn't have a choice. We didn't have an option. There was nowhere else for this child to go. There was no other category for this mixed race child to belong. There were only two categories, white and black. And so this definition was predicated on an assumption and a, and a, and a definition of whiteness as pure. And that is the language that they used, that whiteness was pure. And so as such, blackness was then seen as something that would taint your bloodline. Again, attempting to um, discourage discourage the mixing of the races. It's so strange because that that idea of whiteness as as the sort of the default, the, the blank slate, the, the pure, like that feels very like you've taken that from art history, not from the history of human beings and like how human beings interact. You've decided that color theory applies to human beings. Yes um, and no. Yes and no. I mean, I mean, Ultimately is, ultimately is, right? It's not about it being real or reflecting any level 
of, of reality. It is just um, the logic that they chose to share. Because again, for me, what's important about understanding this history, this is about strategy. This is about conscious strategy. So again, we tend to take race as some sort of biological fact. Race was created. And the only reason race was created was to support racism. Race didn't exist in other spaces in the ways that we know it in the history of the United States. Where my family is from, Ghana, for example, my family became Black when they came to this country because in their homeland, we're identified according to our ethnic groups, what anthropologists might call our tribal groups. We're all Ghanaian in terms of a national identity, but region by region, language and dialect by dialect, um, we're different. We have different identities. That's how we, we come to know ourselves, right? It's not until you're faced with a comparison point. It's not until you're faced with someone who is different that you come to see yourself as a, a collective identity as one. So for many folks of African descent all over the country, Blackness is something that was given to us, I should say, or projected onto us, and we met it. We became Black as a racial identity, right? And so for me, when we talk about neither white nor black is real, it were, they were both created, right? When we want to talk about culture and behavior, we can talk about European and African and see some cultural similarities. We can talk about particular regions of the world and see some similarities, but how do we consolidate power? We have to conflate all of these identities into some things, um, I guess, that are tangible or, or things that we can easily access. And so we create white. And by definition, we create white, again, as pure, right? That definition of whiteness is why for many years, you know, the idea that Italians are white is new. The idea that Jews are white is new. And what's brand new is the idea that folks from North Africa or from the quote unquote Middle East can be, that language is important, can be considered white. So again, whiteness is not a biological fact. Blackness is not a biological fact. These are political racial categories that were created to, to, to sustain systematic and institutional oppression of people who are not white. I thought it was so interesting what you said about strategy. And um, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I'm, I'm curious if, do you see this book as taking part in sort of a counter strategy? Like, is the project of this book to sort of explode some of these strategic uh, sort of contractions of race and ethnic group and culture? Um, that, as much as I would say, you know, as a professor, as an educator, um, my goal is to always push critical thinking. Like, I don't want my students to memorize facts when we even think of history in the ways that we've been given it, particular histories written by particular people or what we have been given as fact. It's the reason why we learn certain things in America in K through 12 that are much different than what you might learn in the UK, same age group, right? History is a tool, right? How do we create American citizens, people with an American identity? We create American narratives that we force you to memorize, right? So when I think of my experience in K through 12, we're memorizing timelines, dates, important uh, uh, events as they told us were important, right? And so for me, I reject that type of learning, right? I want to push critical thinking. Um, so here are the facts as we've been given it. What's, what's that? Even though we weren't there historically, does this make good sense, <laughs> right? In the ways that it is given to us. So for me, 
uh, part of my frustrations, you know, I recognize the privilege that I have in terms of being someone who's been trained um, in, in racial politics and history and such. I've spent a lot of time reading, writing, and researching about race. The average person hasn't had that opportunity, right? When you think about your own education, when did you learn about race? Did you have to learn about race? Was learning about race required for you to get your uh, high school diploma or your college degree? No, it wasn't required, but we were all required to learn math and algebra. Like, again, what's important according to whom, right? So if you haven't had the opportunity to learn about race in a particular way, you take race as a fact. You don't recognize the political implications of race. And so then in this moment, you have people who have the audacity to say we're all human or all lives matter or that moment where folks are saying post-racial. Well, you clearly don't understand how this works. So for me, and again, the history that I map out in the book is very brief, very brief, right? But it's enough, I think, that before you start reading folks' narratives and start questioning how they're treated in this world or how they see themselves, you need something to be grounded in, first and foremost. And so for me, it was important to at least push us to ask questions. And so I always talk about this book as pushing more questions and providing answers. Like, it's not my goal to define anyone, to set the stage for how we should be defining other people. Rather, it's just to get us to start thinking critically about all of these things. I love a book that I leave with more questions than I enter. Yeah. So I, I very much vibe with that, um, that, that ethos. Um, can you talk a little bit about just the process of making this book and um, where it came from and how it came to publication? Yeah. Um, well, there's a whole nother story in terms of how I was inspired um, to, to, to take on this particular project, which I write about in the book. But the process is interesting because I didn't initially conceive of this to be a book. Um, I thought of this as a digital project. I knew that I wanted it to be visual. So I was thinking, you know, at best I'd have a, a dope website, you know, and as I started the project and started sharing about it on social media, it grew and the interest grew and then folks started connecting me to folks and you should talk to this. Um, its presence on social media is how I became connected to producers at CNN. Um, I wrote for CNN's In America blog and then um, I was also a co-producer on their final installment of uh, Black in America, which was based on this project. It was called Who is Black in America? So for me, it was a digital project. But in so doing and in it, 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 its visibility growing, I was approached by a literary agent. It was like, this would make a beautiful book. Have you thought about doing a book? Sure, let's do a book. So, you know, I do the proposal um, because of everyone's, you know, heightened interest. We're all thinking this will be easy. We're going to get a deal. The book was not, a, you know, it wasn't picked up by anyone with all manner of uh, rejection explanations, much of which had to do with it being full color photography, which at the time, um, publishers said that it would make for an expensive book and people don't buy expensive books and buy expensive, I'm talking $40. Um, and so then it was questions of, well, could you do this without photography? No, I'm having a conversation about skin color. I need people to see complexion. What could you do it in black and white? Absolutely not. You know, so um, yeah, rejections all around. And so me being me, I knew that this work had to come out. I was now tied to this idea of doing a book. And so I did it myself. I did a Kickstarter. I called on my community to support me in so doing. I pulled money out of my retirement. I used my own funds and I self-published 
the book. Um, and the book actually won an independent book publisher award in 2014. Um, I sold out of that first run probably within a year, year and a half. And then the book was out of print and I was seeing, you know, resellers selling it on Amazon for upwards of $900. Like if you go to Amazon right now, the first edition, somebody's trying to sell it for $500. And, um, more recently, I was a part of the Share the Mic initiative on social media, and I was paired with Abby Wambach, and we had great conversations, myself, her, Tarana Burke, Glennon Doyle, and, you know, as a gift, I sent Abby a copy of the original book, because I have a few copies left, and Abby gets on Instagram, and she's showing people, like, you got to get this book. I'm like, no, Abby, there are no books for people to get, and so all of these people are reaching out and trying to get a book, and so I had a moment where I was like, you know what? I'll do another Kickstarter. I'll raise some more money. I'll run, I'll do another run of books so people can at least have the book. And a friend of mine who works in publishing at the time, I was already thinking about doing a second book. And so I was already, um, you know, looking for an agent, connected with an agent. Um, and so she's like, why don't you ask your agent, you know, if, if maybe you can sell this to a publisher. And so I told my agent, Tanya McKinnon of McKinnon Literary and, she presented it to Beacon, and within a week, they picked it up. Congratulations. It's a long yeah. journey, but I think Beacon is a great home for it. Um, they're, doing a, they're doing a really nice job getting it out there in front of people. Um, so I'm curious, just like, as you were putting this together, um, were there particular stories or encounters that really stuck with you or that surprised you that, that you're still kind of mulling over? Um, 10 years later, I guess the surprise was probably worn off. So nothing that jumps out at me, but stories that um, definitely made me walk away with more questions. There's a woman in the book named Joanne who... Um, and let me say this also, what I also recognize in this whole process of doing work on skin color politics and particularly, um, this book, like myself, very dark skin, you know, I've always known that I'm dark skin. There's nothing else that I could be. I was raised in new Orleans. New Orleans has its own particular history with race and colorism. And, uh, I say that to say my eye has been trained differently than folks. And so all of us, our eyes and our measures are trained by our environment, Right. So the notion of light skin to me is very different than, let's say, folks I meet here in Philadelphia. Their measures are different, right? There are folks who folks will say, oh, she's light skin. And I'm like, not so much, right? It's because of my experience in New Orleans growing up around folks who identify as Creole. So in any case, I say that to say, if you look at Joanne's picture, someone might just look at her and say, oh, she's a light skinned woman. Because I would say that looking at her. But she talks about people thinking that she's white. What's interesting about Joanne is that she has vitiligo. Joanne lost all of her pigment except for one little brown spot that she showed me on her leg. All of her pigment in the same ways that Michael Jackson told us he had vitiligo and we didn't believe him. Right. And so there's another picture in the book where she's holding up a picture of her former self juxtaposed to her hands. And so you know, something like that, not to be trivial, absolutely makes me question what it is we understand about race, right? Like if we're only going by what someone looks like, how, you know, and who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's actual and what's fact, you know, there are a couple of folks, um, Sean and Destiny, who have albinism, you know, and again, I think for those of us of African descent, 
who are familiar with albinism, you know, I've always seen, known, or heard about someone with albinism. It's not a surprise. You're still black, right? But what was surprising was to hear them talk about folks not recognizing them as black. And I'm like, what world do we live in? But again, I recognize that our worlds aren't all the same, right? And so um, I was also very honored to speak with, um, we call her Grandma Angie. She was 103 at the time of her interview and portrait. She has since um, passed away, but I was just very honored to be able to speak with her because um, she was very lucid and very clear and, and just to tell me stories, but for her also to just be like, almost looking at me like I was crazy. Like, what you, of course I'm black. You know what I mean? Like, again, so generationally, historically, it's like, it's nothing else for me to be. How is this a conversation now? Because in her, you know, specific um, moment of time where she lived, you know, not even where she lived, but when she lived, there were no other options. It was also very interesting to watch her reaction to us even having this kind of conversation because her blackness was a given, you know? So, through it all, it definitely makes me not only think about perhaps generational shifts and generational differences, but also regional ones, because folks from other parts of the world also have very interesting stories. Race functions very differently in different parts of the world. So again, that's what is important for us to all be able to take all of these different contexts into place. And unfortunately, I think much of, um, how do I want to say this? I just noticed that for many Americans, like when we talk about the norm, many Americans operate as if we set the standard for the rest of creation to operate from. And in many ways, we are the ones who are probably the least educated, the most ignorant about these things. And yet somehow we set the standard for race conversations. Why do you think we believe that about ourselves? I mean, do you have any I mean, theories? I American exceptionalism. Yes. <laughs> the American ego is unmatched. I mean, isn't that, I mean, again, connected to the ways in which we are taught history. We're supposed to somehow believe we are the best in the world. The world operates, um, I think, as if we are the best. And again, the question is the best according to whom and according to what, you know, on what scale, in what regard. But again, that's why I always you know, I push back, I think about, you know, when I'm in the presence of children, but also adults, like when we use language of that's weird, that's strange, based upon what? What is your norm? What is the norm that you are operating from? That's actually what's strange, right? Particularly when we start talking about whiteness, blackness, otherness, it's why I don't use the language of minority, because that is the ultimate Jedi mind trick. Black folks might be 13% of the population in this country, but we are two thirds of the world. Again, strategic languaging, strategic um, positioning of identity. And so if you don't have the opportunity or the resources to leave this country and physically go into the world and see that you are actually the majority, that you will live in this country and perhaps concede to your oppression based upon numbers, that's not real. What do you hope um, readers take away from this book or what do you hope for the life of the book now that it's in the world? When I originally did this project, it was, it was for Black folks. It was for us. I wanted us to have critical conversations about race, particularly at a time where folks were attempting to use the language of post-racial. You know, this is pre-Black Lives Matter. 
versus all lives matter. But this is still a moment in time where folks want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and say we're all human and somehow act as if the racial injustice that operates in this country and this world were isolated incidents, right? So initially, it's a conversation for us. Ten years later, it's absolutely a conversation for everyone. But I'm particularly interested in this moment of um, heightened wokeness, I'll call it, in the last year. Everyone wants to be anti-racist and learn more about race, which is fine. Thank you for joining us. Um, but I would like very much for white people specifically um, and people of other races and backgrounds to not receive this book as some kind of like exploration into another world. Like, I wonder how it is to be Black or I wonder what it is they're experiencing. Given the history as I lay it out, I would love for folks to center themselves and somehow learn something about their own identity in reading these narratives as well. And so, again, more questions than answers. I'm hoping that folks begin to question. I would really like, it would be my goal, I would have done my job if folks walk away from this book and want to read more want to learn more, again, because I map out a very brief brief history and I'm sharing folks' personal narratives, but what else are you inspired to learn about now? Well, I think I left that book, this book feeling that way um, and thinking about my own family history. And uh, I'm Italian, so <laughs> as you mentioned, my ancestors were not considered white. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that, um, this book is really important because as Americans, we really hate self-reflection and self-knowledge, <laughs> um, and, and everyone can benefit from thinking about, well, how would I describe my own relationship to race and my own race and other people's race? Um, I, I think every single one of us in this country needs to do that and soon. Absolutely. <laughs> say that, it reminds me that even when we talk about race, I think race is codified as other, right? So for many white people, when we say, let's have a conversation about race, whiteness is not included in that, right? Now it's time to talk about black people. It's time to talk about Latinx folks. It's time to talk about Asians. It's time to talk about everybody but white folks. And so again, white <laughs> so happens to be a racial category. And so I do believe that there's a lot of self-reflection that has to take place. If we actually do want to do something about race, we have to also address and dismantle whiteness. All right. So my last question for you, um, I guess it's a two-part question. First is, are you working on a new project or a sequel to this book, as you mentioned you might be? And second, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about that I didn't ask you about? Well, um, I'm definitely preparing to work on a new project. Um, I wouldn't say that it's a sequel to this one, but it is a continued conversation about race. And I'll just generally say that it'll likely be a conversation about beauty politics and white supremacy. Um, and so I'm excited to work on that because it'll allow me to really kind of tap into a lot of the work that I've already done. So yes, once this promo season is over, I can sit down and, and start working on something. Excellent. Well, as uh, you know, a resident of the Hollywood industrial complex, I very much look forward to writing on beauty, beauty politics. That sounds fascinating. Thank you. All right. So I think we're going to wrap up. Um, Dr. Yabo Blay, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, the book we were discussing is One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. It's available now. You can get it from Skylight Books, skylightbooks.com. We really hope you check it out if you 
photography, as I mentioned, is beautiful. And um, hearing people describe themselves in their own words is so powerful and, and, you know, a gift. So thank you so much for doing that work. Thank you. All right. We'll say our goodbyes. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're all done. Thank you so much. This is really good. Really fascinating. Um, I love listening to you speak about this work. All right. So um, I'm going to go ahead and send Perpetua an email with the air date and your social media graphic and everything. um, And uh, we'll promote it on our socials and get the word out. Okay, cool. cool. All right. Okay. And any other questions for me or anything else you want to? That's good. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. And thanks for bearing with all the technical crap. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.